This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Moyers & Company, a video from Harvard Business Review, the Tom Hartman program, the Young Turks, Radio Dispatch, and Melissa harris Perry, and a sneak peek at the answer to the age-old question of whether Republican politicians are racist or not. The answer? Turns out it doesn't matter. A dog whistle doesn't sound like much to your ears or mine, but it will make the neighborhood canines come running faster than you can shout Lassie or Rin Tin Tin. This whistle sends its signal at a frequency only dogs can hear, which makes it an apt metaphor for this new book, Dog Whistle Politics, by my guest, Ian Haney Lopez. He's broken the code on the racist politics of the last 50 years as politicians mastered the use of dog whistles to turn Americans against each other while turning America over to plutocrats. The dog whistle of racism, says Ian Haney-Lopez, is the dark magic by which middle-class voters have been seduced to vote against their own economic interests. Ian Haney-Lopez is now a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, after teaching at Yale, New York University, and Harvard. Dog Whistle Politics is his third book. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So why did you use this for the title of your book, Dog Whistle Politics? Well, think about a term like welfare queen or food stamp president. On one level, like a dog whistle, it's silent, silent about race. It seems race neutral. But on another, it also has a shrill blast, like a dog whistle, that can be heard by certain folks. And what the blast is, is a warning about race and a warning in, in particular about threatening minorities. And the idea that I'm trying to get across here is racism has evolved, or in particular public racism has evolved. The way in which racism, the way in which racial divisions are stoked in public discourse has changed. And now it operates on two levels. On one level, it allows plausible deniability. This isn't really about race. It's just about welfare, just about food stamps. And on another, there's a subtext, an underground message which can be piercingly loud, and that is minorities are threatening us. And so when people dog whistle about criminals, welfare cheats, terrorists, Islam, Sharia law, ostensibly they're talking about culture, behavior, religion, but underneath are these old stereotypes of degraded minorities, but also, and this is important, implicitly, of whites who are trustworthy, hardworking, decent. When I talk to people, I'm doing a group discussion somewhere, if I ask white people in, in the audience if race is still relevant in your lives, they say absolutely right. not. You know, we're colorblind is right. often what you hear. Right, absolutely. And they believe that, don't you they, think? They do believe it, and it's important that they believe it, and it's important for us to recognize that they believe it and that it's genuine. Look, uh, here's a hard, difficult truth. Most racists are good people. They're not sick. They're not ruled by uh, anger or raw emotion or hatred. They are complicated people, reared in complicated societies. They're fully capable of generosity, of empathy, of real kindness. But because of the idea systems in which they're reared, they're also capable of dehumanizing others and occasionally of brutal violence. And, and, and that's an important truth. Most people are not racist out of a, some sort of a sickness of the soul. They're racist because of the society in which they operate. How so? We need to understand that race has been one of the ways in which we've explained 
why certain groups get certain privileges and advantages and why other groups don't get privileges or, or are exploited or are excluded from the country. Right? This operates not just in terms of class relations and group relations. This operates in terms of a com common sense understanding of who's trustworthy, who's decent, who's law-abiding, and in contrast, who's loathsome, who's diseased, who's dangerous. That common sense of race used to be openly expressed through the 1950s, let's say. Now it's not openly expressed. And that's one of the great triumphs of the civil rights movement. We ought not to gainsay that. But on the other hand, it didn't all go away. It's still there under the surface. Now it doesn't, it, we don't hear it in the language expressly of race, but we hear it in the language of culture and behavior. There, there, there are some assumptions in society, a general proposition unexamined that blacks prefer welfare to work, that undocumented immigrants breed crime, and that Islam spawns violence. Those are dog whistles, are they not? I think they're absolutely dog whistles. They're dog whistles in the sense that they're stereotypes. Stereotype is a sort of cultural presumption of minority inferiority. Blacks are lazy, Latinos are dirty or filthy, uh, Muslims don't respect human life. Those are stereotypes. Dog whistles are, wh are when politicians use coded language that try and trigger those beliefs. But they're not the stereotypes themselves. And, and it's important because dog whistling is not about bigotry. It's about the manipulation of bigotry. It's about the manipulation of stereotypes. So you make it clear in the book that man, this is sort of an old sport, politicians communicating with small groups of impassioned uh, voters in a kind of code that only kindred spirits understand. Nothing especially troubling about that, but it's when it comes to the issue of race that you see a real, a real injury. What makes race different? Two things. First, the message that politicians are trying to communicate when they dog whistle in racial terms is a message that runs directly counter to widely held values and norms of racial egalitarianism. The triumph of the civil rights movement is to teach us, to teach Americans that we're all human, we're all in this together. And so for a politician to come forward and say, I want your support because minorities are threatening and I believe that you ought to, you ought to vote in solidarity with whites, no one can say that expressly. That would be the end of a political career. So they use a dog whistle term and they say, I want you to vote in a way that cuts off food stamps and, and, and limits welfare and gets tough on crime and slams the border on illegal aliens. It's a racial appeal, but it has to happen in code. That's one difference. The message that's being communicated is a message that violates core uh, common moral norms. Second difference. Yes, there are lots of different cultural provocations that are expressed in dog whistle terms. Race is one of those. But I want to also suggest it's not just one of those, it's the primary cultural provocation that has been used by conservatives over the last 50 years. Race is special because it does so much damage, not only to people of color, but in the way it restructures our society as a whole. Give me a clear example of that. So we know Ronald Reagan used to talk about welfare queens, but he also had this other stump speech that he would give. He would speak to his audiences and he would say, understand how frustrating it is for you when you're standing in line at a grocery store waiting to buy hamburger and there's some young fellow ahead of you buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. Now, the first time he told that tale, it wasn't some young fellow, he said some young buck. 
And the young buck was a racially coded term that stood for a strong African-American man. And so that term, that moved from being a dog whistle to an outright, outright racial provocation. Reagan backed off and he started talking about some young fellow buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. Think about the characters in this story. The first character is the person buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. And that's conjuring the image of the lazy minority who's strong, who could work, but who doesn't want to work and prefers to be on welfare. But the other image is the you in that story, who Reagan's talking to. And the you is ostensibly the voter, the hardworking taxpayer, the law-abiding American. That voter, that hardworking American implicitly has a racial identity, and that's white. So there you can see this racial narrative. You, Reagan is saying to, to white audiences, you're being taken advantage of. There's a third character here, government. It's government ostensibly that is taking advantage of whites, that is taking their money through taxes and then giving it to these undeserving minorities. So what did Reagan suggest? He suggested tax cuts. We shouldn't, you shouldn't have to pay taxes to a government that's just taking your money and giving it to minorities. And indeed, what did he do? He enacted tax cuts. In the first year of his tax cuts, $164 billion went to American corporations. Over the 1980s, the Reagan tax cuts transferred a trillion dollars to America's top 1%. Yes, voters got the tax cuts they thought were aimed at cutting off undeserving minorities. But in fact, it was a politics that was showering money on the very richest Americans. We have to understand the way in which something has fundamentally changed in American politics. We used to understand that the biggest threat in a political life was the power of concentrated money, the power of big money and of corporations to hijack the marketplace and to hijack government. But now Republicans for 50 years have been telling voters the biggest threat in your life is that minorities are going to hijack government. The government has been taken over and now serves them. So when white voters vote against government, they think they're voting against minorities. But in fact, they're voting to give over control of government back to the very rich, back to the big corporations. What you're looking at is the scariest thing that you've ever seen. More dangerous than a mugger, less hearted than a murderer. I'm a Fortune 500 big business burglars. A corporate crook switch my look from baggy jeans and Timbo boots to a $2,000 Kenneth Cole suit. And my business? My business is to infiltrate your business and find ways to take your loot. No more million man marches, cause the only thing that comes from million man marches are two million swollen and sore arches. I ain't asking, I'm learning from y'all, I'm taking. I'm tired of waiting, so after years of preparations, I'm now taking my reparations. The revolution will happen at the end of the fiscal year. I'm Michael Norton. I'm an associate professor at Harvard Business School and the co-author of the new book, Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. I want to talk to you today about a piece that we have in the July-August issue of Harvard Business Review. But before I tell you what's in that piece, I first want to ask you to play a game with me. You're looking at an array of faces right now, and I'm going to ask you to play a version of the game that you may have played as a little kid that was called Guess Who. And if you remember that game, you and a partner both had faces in front of you, one of you had a face, and the other person had to guess the face you were looking at from that array of faces. I want you to play this game with me right now. Grab a partner and pick a face that your partner is going to have to guess. And the only rule is your partner can only ask you questions that you can answer with the words yes or no. Pause this video and take a few minutes to play the game. When you're done playing the game, come back, hit unpause, and I'll tell you more about the research that we've conducted. So you finished the game. 
How did it go? What kinds of questions did your partner ask you? Maybe they asked, is this person smiling or not? Or is this person wearing a hat or not? Or maybe they asked a question like, is this person black or not? But if they did, that would be quite unusual because in the research that we've done, we find people are very, very reluctant to ask about race when we have them play the exact game that you just played. Why are people reluctant? It appears as though they feel that by asking about race, it might signal that they care a lot about race, and it might even signal that they might be a racist. We find in our experiments that even though the array was half white and half black, and asking the question, is the person white or black, a very useful tool for narrowing down the faces, people are really, really reluctant to ask about that question. And in fact, in another version of the game, we find that if we have people play with a black partner, they become even more unlikely to ask about race because they're even more worried that they might appear to be biased when they do that. And there's an even worse outcome because people who avoid asking about race, even though they are trying to do so to look as though they don't care about race, end up looking more uncomfortable and more biased. I think the dynamics in this game, which you and your partner just experienced, really suggest how complicated and interesting the dynamics are when we talk about race in contemporary America. We also tried some different versions of this game. In one of them, we actually asked not grown-ups to play the game, but for children to play what is, in the end, a children's game. We wondered when we had them play the game you just played whether the same thing might happen. What we found is that older children, by the time they were 9 or 10, actually stopped asking about race in the game. They'd already learned that maybe it's not wise to ask about race. But the kids who were younger, who were 7 and 8, who weren't so concerned about those social norms yet, in fact, were more likely to ask about race. And as a result, they ended up beating the older kids, performing better on the game. We tried one other version of the game. We ran a version of the game that's very much like the one you played again, but with one difference. In this case, all of the faces were white, but each picture had, in the lower corner of the picture, a white or a black dot. And we wanted to see if it's not about race, if it's not about is this person white or black, but more is this dot white or black, if now people would be very willing to use color because it could be so useful for guessing the face. And that is exactly what we see as well. So if it's race, people will not ask the question black or white, but if it's the color of a dot, like the color of paint on a wall, People are perfectly happy to ask about white or black. And it really suggests that it's the social dynamics surrounding race that make us so uncomfortable talking about color. We know in everyday life, people often struggle to describe someone in the workplace who may be of a different ethnicity. And while the motivation comes from a good place, which is, I don't want to be or appear racist, it ends up impeding communication. And organizations that are savvy realize that a good solution to race is not to avoid talking about race, which, as you saw when you played the game, can impede communication between people, but actually acknowledge race openly. So when I say that people like George Wallace or Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan or Mitt Romney, that they've engaged in dog whistle racism, often the retort is, these are decent folks. They're not bigots. And I want to say, I'll grant that. I'm happy to grant that. 
so what? This isn't about bigotry. This isn't about hate every black person animus. Indeed, dog whistle politics doesn't come out of animus at all. It doesn't come out of some desire to hurt minorities. It comes out of a desire to win votes. And in that sense, I want to start using the term strategic racism. It's racism as a strategy. It's cold, it's calculating, it's considered. It's the decision to achieve one's own ends, here winning votes, by stirring racial animosity. And that's the decision that George Wallace made, that's the decision that Ronald Reagan made, that's the decision that Mitt Romney made. But we were talking in my office yesterday with the young people who were, had been reading your book and they said, but wait a minute, if it really works, how did Barack Obama win two consecutive races for the presidency by fairly comfortable margins? So if you want to see how it works, think about the demographics of the Republican Party today. The Republican Party today is 90% white in terms of where it draws its support, and it's 98% white in terms of its elected officials. The country as a whole is almost 65% white. You don't achieve that level of racial homogeneity by accident. It reflects 50 years of using race to mobilize voters. Or, again, back to Barack Obama. Obama won, but not among whites. Among whites, Mitt Romney won three out of five white votes. Now you might just say, well, well, maybe he won among white men. That was one of the refrains. No, he won among white women too. Or you might say, well, maybe this is just a function of the Deep South. True, he did better in the South. But Mitt Romney won a majority of white voters in 46 out of 50 states. Or you might say, maybe this is just an older generation. Maybe this is going to die off. No. Mitt Romney won a majority of the white vote in every age cohort of white voters, including the very youngest. There is tremendous support in the white community for politicians who warn the public about the dangers confronting them uh, by minorities, who warn them about a federal government that is ostensibly by and for minorities. Yes, Barack Obama won it, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking we don't have a big problem in our country when 60% of whites are voting, are willing to vote for a politician who promises to slash taxes for the rich, to deregulate the economy, to slash social services, and indeed to defund large parts of the federal government. So at one point I, I tried to write a little summary of where I was in your book, and I wrote down what he's saying is that conservatives use the dog whistle to get the support of those still harboring racist sentiments and then convince them to go along with other policies that favor the rich, even though those policies hurt everyone else, themselves included. I think so. I think so. Now, I, I would say it slightly differently. I'm talking about what's happening with white voters, but I'm not talking about all whites. I'm not talking about every person of European descent, let's say. I'm talking about voters for whom being white is central to how they think of themselves and how they think of social relations. And this may be conscious, but more likely it's unconscious. How can it be unconscious? It's unconscious because of how race works in America. Okay, so why do we think in racial terms? There's a big push to say, focus on cognition, focus on the way we think. People think automatically in terms of group categories. And by automatically, I mean almost instantaneously and unconsciously. We tend to prefer in-group members and to disprefer out-group members. Fine, that's hardwired in human cognition, but in a society structured around race, race becomes the category through which we do a lot of our automatic thinking. And now here's the last point. 
our environment continually tells us that race is relevant. How so? Think about the suburbs versus the inner cities. Think about elite universities versus poor public schools. Those are racialized spaces. They are occupied alternately almost exclusively by whites or instead by a heterogeneous mix of non-whites. And that seems to confirm these deeper stereotypes about, about what race is and about how race really defines fundamentally different group characteristics. All of this is operating at an unconscious level. And while race, there's been a lot of racial progress and that has opened up room for uh, uh, elites like Barack Obama, uh, like myself, in fact, racism has adapted in a way that continues to damage minority communities. I think about mass incarceration. I think about mass deportation. I think about the conditions in, in many poor areas of our country, rural and urban. But also, and here's the important point, race has evolved in a way that has damaged the broad middle class in this country. That's the subtitle of your book, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. And here's the core point that I'm trying to get across. This hasn't been just about minorities. Yes, minorities have been demonized. Yes, we've been told that minorities are criminals in a way that has led to a rapid expansion of the carceral system. Yes, we've been told they're abusing welfare in a way that, that has led to massive cuts in welfare. That's all true. But at the same time, this demonization of minorities has led people to demonize the federal government mm. and indeed to demonize government generally. So when we think about the shutdown of the government the House Republicans keep pursuing, why do they pursue that? Why would anybody support a shutting down of government? Because government itself is now seen as a problem insofar as it's seen as by and for minorities. So this is the beauty of dog whistle politics. On one level, it always allows plausible deniability because it's always giving a reason that is seemingly race neutral. And yet on another level, it's always triggering racial fears. Now, I want to back up and say it's possible that people have concerns that, that are not connected to racial politics and indeed aren't strategic, that are completely genuine. I, I understand that. And I also want to say, look, this is a complicated society. There's lots going on. There's going to be basic disagreements about the role of government, the role of public schools, the role of religion in society. I have all of that. I don't want to be understood to be saying it's always racial provocation. It's always dog whistle politics. But acknowledging that there might be these other factors is not the same thing as establishing that dog whistle politics isn't a powerful force in our society. And it works. And it works. If we want to understand how we got to levels of wealth inequality we haven't seen in 100 years, if we want to understand what produced the Great Recession and why since the Great Recession 95% of the recovery has gone to the top 1%, we need to focus on how race is shaping contemporary politics. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. 
Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There's a difference between being in the majority and being in the minority. And that's what Jack Kennedy got and was talking about, and it's what Richard Nixon didn't get. And I don't want to characterize my last guest, he's not here to defend himself, but I would say in general that what John Boehner is saying is that he doesn't understand that difference. There's a reason why... Uh, having a traditionally black college and continue, continuing to call it a traditionally black college or having an organization that's principally African Americans and continuing to call it the NAACP is an okay thing but having an organization that's the National Association for the Advancement of White People or having a college where you say you know we're just gonna we're just gonna admit white people is not a good thing even though on the on the in the, in the conservative world in this on this kind of surface logic that seems like a double standard it's not because it has to do with the tyranny of the majority over the minority it has to do with the with economic political social power At the most visceral level, I mean, the, not just the power to employ or not employ, to educate or not educate, but the power to include or exclude from the mainstream of society in ways that lead to devastated lives, suicides, broken marriages, multi-generational crises and distress. There is a difference between being in the majority and having that white privilege, and in this case I would say straight privilege, that I have enjoyed all my life, and being in the minority, and being a person of color, and not having instant access to everything that a person born white in this country has or being a person whose sexual preference is not plain vanilla straight normal whatever you want to call it and therefore falling outside of what you might call the mainstream and 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 being in a position where simply because of who they are with relationship to their perception of themselves with regard to their sexuality and and it's almost sexuality is almost the wrong word because it implies that it's all about sex it's not it's about gender their gender identity. It's about who am I? Am I a white straight guy? Well, I am. But am I gay or straight? Am I black or white? Am I a person? You know, how, who am I? And if if that if the answer to that who am I is something that falls outside the mainstream in such a way that the mainstream has a long history of not just pushing aside people of color or gay people, not just pushing them aside, but of destroying them. Literally from the founding of this country. People have been killed for being gay. 
to this day, literally from the founding of this country to this day, people have been killed for being a person of color. White people can't make that claim because they've been the killers, not the killees. They've been the oppressors, not the oppressees. They've been the, they, they, we, I am part of that club. And it's those of us who are part of that club that need to really get it. That the logic that says, well, why can't black people get together and discriminate against white people? I mean, after all, isn't that, why can't gay people get together and discriminate against, that that kind of logic is fundamentally racist and bigoted at its core because it fails to acknowledge the history it fails to acknowledge the reality of those people's experience in life it fails to acknowledge the extraordinary difficulties these people are having in this society as a consequence simply of who they are stepped in it earlier this week when he seemed to indicate that the cause of poverty in America is you damn lazy black people. Uh, decide for yourself in this audio tape. That's, that's, that's this tailspin or spiral that we're looking at in our communities. You know, your, your buddy Charles Murray or, or Bob Putnam over at Harvard, those, those guys have written books on this, which is we have got this tailspin of culture in our inner cities in particular of men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about working or learning the value and the culture of work. And so there's a real culture problem here that has to be dealt with. Everybody's got to get involved. So this is what we talk about when we talk about civil society. If you're driving from the suburb you know, to the sports arena downtown by these blighted neighborhoods, you can't just say, I'm paying my taxes, government's going to fix that. You need to get involved. So instantly, a great deal of criticism. People saying that him using the inner city in that uh, in that way is is code words for black. Basically, here's an example. This is uh, Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from California, who says, "My colleague Congressman Ryan's comments about inner city poverty are a thinly veiled racial attack and cannot be tolerated." Let's be clear: when Mr. Ryan says inner city, when he says culture, these are simply code words for what he really means: black. Yeah, I disagree with her. I don't think it's thinly veiled. It's thickly veiled. Yeah. Or so no, non-veiled. Yeah, it's just not veiled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's veil-free. He just didn't say the word black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does anybody think that there's a different uh, meaning of inner city? Yeah. Like, so the ironic thing here is that if he just said uh, culture in terms of, 
where we stand as he later amended in rural areas yeah, we'll and to. inner city, etc. Okay, we'll get to his excuses in a se- second. Because that's not racial either. <laughs> when, you, when you point to the rural areas, yeah, that means white. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be a way of saying I'm blaming all poor people, not just poor black people, right? Then you could have an interesting conversation about, hey, what's going wrong culturally that we're not emphasizing education? What do we have to fix in that regard? It's a tough conversation where people are still going to get offended, right? But at least we're having a possibly productive conversation into what's going wrong in the country and fixing it. Instead, this is a way of saying welfare queen, they're lazy, etc., and it's just blacks. They're getting those gifts from the government. I was wrong about Paul Ryan. You know, and I think a lot of people were wrong about Paul Ryan. I sort of thought that you know, he puts a nice face on things. He's dumb. Oh, that's interesting. Like, I don't think he's evil. I really don't. He quotes Ayn Rand and Charles Murray yeah, without yeah, having any clue what they mean to people, yeah. who they are. I mean, you know, Charles Murray and John and I were talking about this before, and I, I, I confused him with someone else. But, I mean, this is the bell curve guy. This is a guy mm-hmm. who says blacks are dumber or they're born dumb. Yeah, yeah. Black, it's irreparable. Because their skin difference. is pigmented differently. They're not as smart as the rest of us. What makes yeah. him sound dumbest to me in that little speech he gave is the fact that he's overlooking the fact that these sports stadiums that they've <laughs> built haven't <laughs> really benefited the neighborhoods they've been yeah. built in. Right. That's Isn't right. that the point that he's kind of missing? <laughs> that the incredibly gigantic tax breaks and all of the money that was poured into these things with the promise of gentrifying neighborhoods hasn't it's happened. It's funny. It's happened. Owners, and it doesn't happen it in will. not just Minneapolis, but it doesn't happen in LA and it doesn't happen in cities across America. Uh, All right, I'm done. Yeah, no, look, and, and it's funny because one of the places where it has happened effectively, and I don't know to the extent that they'd hope, is Washington, D.C., which was where the MCI Center, I don't even know what it's called now, where the Capitals and the Wizards play. And the old owner built that. Like, he built it himself. I'm sure he got some tax breaks and was encouraged to do it, but he paid for it with his dollars that he had in the bank, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just think it's ironic that the one, an owner who was like, no, no, I don't take your money, I'll build it, it's my team, I'll build it and we'll help and hopefully you'll encourage me to build it. And now there are a bunch of restaurants and it's a nice area of town. Yeah. But they didn't get the tax breaks for it. Now, uh, j- I, really fast, money. just because I know that many people watching this, uh, conservatives who happen across their videos are gonna say, oh, you guys are being too hard in our city. That could mean so many different things. Uh, a a freak, uh, occasional TYT contributor, David Sroda, did a search, he, we have a graph we're gonna show for you. Uh, this is the frequency by year of the term inner city uh, in books in this massive Google, uh, like a, I guess, compendium. And you can see that it spikes in the 60s going through to the 70s. Uh, and th- this is the quote uh, from, from David Sroda. The term basically only started being used in the lead up to and immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement's legislative successes at precisely the moment the conservative political backlash to the civil rights movement came into vogue. And apparently they were scared enough by those legislative successes that they began to hide, at least to some extent, their racist terminology through terms like inner city, now more recently like thug. And the guy who who he quoted, Charles Murray, who's just a a racist in a suit, um, uh, yeah, I mean, literally talks about that. He says that you know that that, that all these there you know the country is filled with white people, and they know there's something wrong with these black people, but they don't quite can't put their finger on it. Yeah. Um, and it turns out I'm here to tell them that it's okay. 
they're dumb and lazy. And lazy. He goes further than that, and, and this goes to an earlier point that Ben made about Paul Ryan and his sophistication, right? So he was smart enough to read Ayn Rand. It's an interesting book, right? But he's not sophisticated enough to realize this possible downsides. Like, for example, he's like, he talk, talks glowingly in public about Ayn Rand, and they're like, hey, you idiot, you're running for vice president. Ayn Rand was a massive atheist. That might be some political trouble for you. He's like, oh, golly gee, oh my god, I didn't think about that. Oh, yeah, and who was terrible with money, and by the way, at the end of her life, took government support, and is a massive hypocrite, and also, it's, uh, because of her Superman theory, supported and, and looked up to a mass killer. Okay, she thought like, oh yeah, way to be beyond morals, be your own man. So, but he, Paul Ryan, doesn't know it, a lot he's, of this, and he lacks sophistication. Not that he's evil, but just is a very simple thinker, right? And yes. when he talks about Charles Murray, somebody must have told him, hey, Charles Murray is a professor. He's and he's fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Exactly, and it's okay to quote him, but he didn't even read one page of Charles Murray because if you read Charles Murray, not only does he say all the things that Ben mentioned, he goes on to say we should not have a affirmative action or help. And I thought, wait a minute, that's kind of counterintuitive, because if you think black people are less intelligent than white people, shouldn't you help them more? No, he says, no, they're so stupid that they're hopeless. Right, that's right. And Paul and Ryan, thinking about running for president again, ran for vice president, quotes Charles Murray in public, like, oh, and you know, your buddy Charles Murray, yes, okay, that's what I mean by inner city. He's a simple, simple guy. Paul Ryan. He is. And, the, you know, the language is really dangerous. When you start talking about the culture of work yeah. in mm -hmm. a place you've never lived and you start pointing your finger at those people, it's, that's rhetorically yeah. dangerous shit. It's really ugly. You, think you, know, you, you know, if he had lived in, say, Detroit for yeah, the past right. 10 years working to sort of close the gap between the 8 Mile and downtown and worked and, and said, you know, here's what I found out. But that's not, a, it's, it's not my drive to my box seats <laughs> from my house. Right. I see I got a been problem with the culture of work. Yeah. What? He doesn't yeah, know he, I, you know, so funny, Brian, I thought the exact same thing. I thought, who has he talked to? What professor of urban studies has he spent any time with? Even a conservative professor of urban studies. What mayors of big cities yeah. has he gone and talked to? Has he met with the head of housing and urban development or any of their lifelong career uh, uh, bureaucrats who are working, the civil servants who like understand the problem? He, of course, he's done none of it. You don't even, I don't even, we don't need, need to know the answer. We know. What he's done is exactly what you said, which is get in his Chevy Suburban and go to Bucks games and gone through some neighborhoods that made him lock his doors. After being criticized extensively over a few days, Paul Ryan came back with this statement saying, it is clear that I was, I was inarticulate about the point I was trying to make. I was not implicating the culture of one community, but of society as a whole. We have allowed our society to isolate or quarantine the poor rather than integrate people into our communities. The predictable result has been multi-generational poverty and little opportunity. I also believe the government's response has inadvertently created a poverty trap that builds barriers to work. A stable, good-paying job is the best bridge out of poverty. That's a good. That, that that's what he should have said the first time. You know why? Yeah. The minimum wage, yeah. which right. he will not raise. Yeah, and that's a fine point to make. And the reason he said that at that point is because he didn't say it. That's right. Somebody Someone on his staff on his wrote that and then released yeah. that as a statement.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Should we spend a minute on this this Paul Ryan thing? Yeah, yeah. He said basically like that there's a culture in the inner city where people aren't interested in working. Especially men. But yeah. Surely that must be why there's poverty is that people don't feel like working. That's well, easy. And one of Paul Ryan's other main buzzwords is dignity. That work is what gives people dignity. <clears throat> and that, that offering government handouts, there's no dignity in that. Therefore, you remove government handouts... And people get dignity Which is, uh, because they then don't have this, you know, incentive to be lazy, as as he often puts it. Which is quite convenient thing, because then when you follow through on that, well, work provides dignity, then if people don't want to work, that means that they're kind of fundamentally undignified, right? Right, like it's absolutely. A, it's a great way to, to switch it around, that it's, it's not that there is no economy uh, for them, it's not that that they're boxed out of the economy because of structures of racism, it's that they are fundamentally undignified and not interested in dignity like all those good people who look like Paul Ryan. Right, and it doesn't account for the working poor. Right. Who, if you are lucky enough to have a job, maybe it doesn't pay a living wage because of the 30-year attack on unions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's just obviously all sorts of of ways that that Ryan's uh, outlook is, is just... It's it's not only that it's dis- that it results in discriminatory practices, which it does, but also that it's just fundamentally factually inaccurate. Right, factually inaccurate, and and fundamentally relies on a dehumanization of the people he's talking about, which are clearly people of color. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Tanahasi Coates has a typically fantastic piece about this. Um, that you should definitely go and check out. He basically says everything that there is to say about the the racism behind this. But he and and, and the, the, one of the points that Coates makes that I think is so important is that this is not unique to Paul Ryan, nor is it unique to conservatives. Right? right. Like that that it's it's quite easy for for many of us who you know are repulsed by Paul Ryan to to hear him say this and recognize that it's a dog whistle, uh, recognize that it's racist. And say, you know, what a, what a pig Paul Ryan is or whatever. But, uh, but that, that as Tanahasi puts it, you know, uh, it's not unlike what um, Obama says when he talks about, you know, um, failures of, of, you know, black fatherhood and, and, um, you know, personal responsibility narratives and, uh, uh, you know, the same, the same ideas. Well, well, you know, it's just that there's this, that this is a cultural failing or a moral failing, not an economic failing and not a, a failing of, of a history of and continually pervasive racist hiring practices and, and housing practices and all of that. Well, and one of the things that friend of the show, Michael Denzel Smith, 
wrote recently was that this idea of respectability politics, pull up your pants, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, pull up your pants politics, uh, <laughs> is that there's no, that, that even like, let's say that every, a uh, young black man, quote unquote, pulled up his pants or whatever, or like, and it did all the things that Don Lemon and Bill Cosby and, mm-hmm. and Obama are, are, you know, telling them to do. Michael says, well, then the definition of respectability would just change. Right. Because that's how racism works. Right. This isn't about a discrete set of actions. It has nothing to do with your pants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not about four behaviors that you can like change and then all of a sudden erase history of racism in the United States. Right. It's about blackness and the demonization of blackness. And right, the goal posts will continue to be moved just as they demonstrably are. I mean, look no further than Trayvon Martin. Uh, it was just the year anniversary of um, the police shooting of Kamani Gray. And there was a really powerful moving video from his principal speaking uh, at a memorial and, you know, his principal said it was a week until any media coverage named him as a student, as a high school student. All the other mm-hmm. words were gangbanger or teen, thug, what, what have you. And so this, it, it, the idea that, that there's something you could do to, to be accepted, but you're not doing it is just, it's the great myth of respectability politics. Right. And that all, that white students are doing the thing that they should be doing. Right. Right. Which is like this sort of invisible, other side of the coin of respectability politics is that white students who are succeeding are succeeding because they have made the correct choices. That's right. That they've never made a mistake that, that they've never played loud music. Uh They've never been out in the street late at night. Wearing baggy pants. Right. Wearing baggy (laughs) pants. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they're all, their pants are always pulled up, whatever it is that, that they don't listen to, you know, shameful music what what whatever it is that uh right that is used to demonize blackness that's such a good point that the flip side of that is is to exonerate whiteness yeah and paul paul ryan's uh his whole shtick is that he's this this great um the he's the policy wonk of the gop that's that's been his shtick for three four years now uh that that he's the he's their serious guy that when Ted Cruz or whoever from the the Tea Party who's going on and on about I don't even know what Ted Cruz I'm so bad at this game <laughs> but uh <laughs> blah 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 I'm Ted Cruz yeah whatever the hell is it is whatever B is in Ted Cruz's bonnet <laughs> lately that would make for a great C-SPAN sub, sub program that should be yeah that's definitely an official segment on radio dispatch even though we'll never come back to it what B is currently in Ted Cruz's bonnet but Ryan has very very uh deliberately set himself in contrast to the to the kind of uh elevated rhetoric and the the quote unquote red meat to the to the conservative um base that that he's supposed to be this this guy with a serious health care plan and a serious plan to rein in the deficits and and um in other words he's not a rabid and, yeah. uh foam at the mouth conservative he's just sensible yeah. so when he's racist he's not being racist he's just being sensible yeah and he's driven by by data yeah. or something and as as Paul Krugman has been doing uh on an almost daily basis for 3 years uh he's been debunking it he's he, refers to Paul Ryan as a flim flam man, which is just great because Paul Ryan's 
these these big thick binders that he turns in and that he calls budgets rely on what Krugman refers to as magic asterisks, where you'll it'll say the savings uh, savings of X percent or economy grows by X percent. And there'll be an asterisk, like literally, I'm not exaggerating, there'll be an asterisk next to it. And then the footnote <laughs> Will not is, grow by 5%. Yeah, the, the footnote is, you know, middle steps unclear. That I'm exaggerating. But um, the footnote is it, just not. Yeah, right. And Krugman has laid out time and time and time again that every policy proposal that Ryan has put forward is is based entirely on imaginary science. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that makes his, his status in DC as, as respectable policy wonk even more, just even more grating. Mm -hmm. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it, want to change the world, there's nothing. There is no life I know To compare with pure imagination Living there You'll be free If you truly Over the past few weeks, an important public debate has been taking place online about race, culture, and poverty. Now, the principals are two very smart people who write for two well-regarded magazines. This is Jonathan Chait, a writer for New York Magazine, a self-professed liberal who writes about politics and media. This is Ta-Nehisi Coates, national correspondent for The Atlantic. Now, I should disclose that he once described me as America's foremost public intellectual, which was not only an overstatement, but also a designation far more descriptive of the prolific Coates himself. So, those are the interlocutors, and here is what sparked the debate. This is Congressman Paul Ryan on March 12th. We have got this tailspin of culture in our inner cities in particular of men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about working or learning the value and the culture of work. And so there's a real culture problem here that has to be dealt with. The backlash to Ryan's comments was swift. Congresswoman Barbara Lee described them as a thinly veiled racial attack and progressive commentators pointed to the hypocrisy of Ryan's insistence on cultural explanations for poverty while advancing policies that deepen inequality. And as is frequently the case, Ta-Nehisi Coates on March 18th made a contribution to this discussion that was especially insightful. He pointed to the discursive similarities between Congressman Ryan's culture statement and President Obama's repeated invocations of Cousin Pookie when talking to black audiences about how to lessen inequality. Now, Coates was less interested in lamb-blasting this president in particular than in reminding us about the slippery assumptions about blackness, poverty, and cultural deficiency that are ubiquitous. White conservatives do this pathologizing, of course. Just look at Congressman Ryan. White liberals do it. See President Clinton's determination to end welfare as we knew it. Black conservatives do it. 
Just look at the new black conservative magazine, American Current C, whose stated mission is, quote, transcending race through delivering the awareness of a culture free of government dependency. As Coates was pointing out, even black liberals tend to conflate poverty with pathology, even President Obama. Here's the president announcing the My Brother's Keeper initiative in February, a program designed to remove the structural obstacles to success for young men of color. Yes, we need to train our workers, invest in our schools, make college more affordable, and government has a role to play. And yes, we need to encourage fathers to stick around and remove the barriers to marriage and talk openly about things like responsibility and faith and community. In the words of Dr. King, it is not either or, it is both and. So, are you still with me? Conservative congressman invokes culture of poverty. Progressives cry foul. Smart cultural observer points out that the president is sometimes guilty of the same strategy. On March 19th, enter Jonathan Chait, who responded to Coates' piece by defending the idea that culture is, at least in part, responsible for the perpetuation of African-American poverty. He wrote, it would be bizarre to imagine that centuries of slavery followed by systematic terrorism, segregation, discrimination, a legacy wealth gap, and so on, did not leave a cultural residue that itself became an impediment to success. Coates then responded, quote, Chait believes it's bizarre to think otherwise. I think it's bizarre that he doesn't bother to see his argument as if it's actually true. Oppression might well produce a culture of failure. It might also produce a warrior spirit and a deep commitment to attaining the very things which had been so often withheld from you. There is no need for theorizing. The answers are knowable. And that is when it started to get good. Chate, <laughs> March 28th, Barack Obama versus the culture of poverty. Coates, March 30th, other people's pathologies. Chate, March 31, ta Coates disagrees with Jonathan Chate. And so do I. Coates, April 1, the blue period, an origin story. And so on. I mean, man, <laughs> nerdalicious, good. Wickedly smart people using enormous words, complex sentence structures, and thinly veiled intellectual shade to discuss consequential issues. And it wasn't happening in some college lecture hall. People were paying attention. Writers at The Nation, The American Prospect, The New York Times all jumped in to tap out Coates or Chate and get their own licks in. Heck, even Gawker covered it. Now, call that a win for public democratic deliberation. But as much as I eagerly anticipated each new entry in this thoroughly engrossing conversation, it was also disappointing. Many times in American history, African Americans have entered multiracial progressive political coalitions only to discover that even those who were supposed to be political allies are eager to argue there is something inherently, residually wrong with black people. Far less frequently do impoverished black folks find a public ally among the intelligentsia willing and able to assert without qualification their humanity, dignity, and absolute worthiness. Coates has done so unwaveringly. And watching it happen in real time has been stunning. I am pleased to welcome to the table Ta-Nehisi Coates, national correspondent for The Atlantic. And I'd also like to note here that we did invite Jonathan Chait as well, but he was not available to come on the show today. Ta-Nehisi, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Melissa. So this has really taken on um, a very high level of uh, sort of public interest. 
To what do you um, attribute that at this moment, given that you write about these kinds of things regularly? Why has this captured public attention? I actually don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I never know what's going to catch fire and what's not going to catch fire. But I think um, there is a deep, deep presumption across, across the board in America that there is something culturally wrong uh, with people who are poor and specifically with African-Americans. Um, and I think that's accepted wisdom right now for whatever reason. Um, Barack Obama, whenever he makes that statement, whenever the president does that sort of speech, he always gets applause. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very from African American audience. From African American audience, mm -hmm. and, I, and by across to what I mean, even among African Americans, yeah. um, and I think people think it's a little bizarre when you say, "No, no, 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 it's not culture at all. Mm -hmm. It's not culture at all." So. so Part of how Chait begins his conversation with you in his response back is he, he returns actually to a piece that you wrote in October right. of 2010, right. um, where you talk about basically, I think what we would describe as code switching, right. learning that the, um, the sets of tools that you had in one space are right. not appropriate tools or right. effective tools to use right. in another. Right. What is it that you think Chait misunderstood about what you were trying to say in that piece. Well, his argument, and this is the argument you know, across the board, for is that this is cultural residue. In other words, there's something that happened in the past that has nothing to do with what you're going through right now. And you're you know, bringing that forward, be it generational, be it in a past life. Um, when I had that incident, <laughs> I was living uh, in Harlem. I was, uh, I think, about six months removed from unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, I had just, you know, lost a job. I actually didn't have a job at that point, even when I was out there freelance writing. I was living within the environment where that behavior would have been appropriate. There was nothing residual about it at all. Mm -hmm. It just so happened where I was working, mm -hmm. it was clearly not appropriate. Right. And, you know, that's a lesson that, you know, folks have to learn. Um, I'm totally in favor with teaching that lesson, by the way. Mm -hmm. I do think people need to learn that certain behaviors are appropriate one place and certain behaviors you know, are not appropriate other places. Um, but this is not residue. White supremacy is not residue. It's a real lived thing for African Americans. All right, I want to talk about that discourse of white supremacy because it is one of the important pushbacks that you give to the cultural pathology mm -hmm. argument. So what is at stake for you intellectually and politically to say that what we face in terms of questions of um, continuing racial inequality needs to be ascribed to continuing white supremacy and help us to understand what you mean when you say that versus a cultural residue among African-Americans. Well, I think, I think part of the problem is that uh, liberals and progressives, when we talk about this, we have this idea that we were racist in the past and we are suffering after effects. But what academics know, I mean, you can you know, go out and look at the studies and you see uh, young African-Americans who are looking for low-wage jobs uh, have about the same chance of getting a job as a white person with a felony on their record. I mean, when we see things like this, this is a thing that's happening right now. Um, a really, really small number of people on the planet Earth are African-American males, and yet 8% of the incarcerated population on the planet Earth is, is African-American and male. You can't separate those two things out. This is happening right now. So, so okay, but let, let's go to that because, so I, I love the, the, the piece of social science research you just told us. That's Diva Page's right, research exactly. and marked that um, if, if uh, employers are looking at a resume of an African-American without a felony right. and a um, white um, applicant with a felony. You're so sharp. You yeah. stated the study. Wow. <laughs> well, That's I, why I, you're America's foremost <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just a nerd, right? Wow. So, so, so the, the idea that, that, that we see like decisions being made in employment right now. Right. But when you say the piece about incarceration, right, that's the right. kind of, of data point that is simply a data point, right? right. So, so you have mass incarceration. Right. But then what happens is precisely this ability to have a conversation about, well, why then? Right. Is it because of criminality, heightened criminality among right. African-American men? Or is it because of heightened policing among African-American men? Right. How would we, because you say the answers are knowable. Right. How would we begin to know those answers? Well, 
Well, I, I think like one of the regrettable things is there's a great disconnect. Um, I would say specifically with historians, but I think this goes across the board in terms of the academy and people over here who write about it in the press. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see more of a convergence, more of a, uh, of a conversation back and forth. Uh, because oftentimes when I talk to social scientists, when I talk to historians, they know the answers. I mean, it's not really blurry for them at all. So um, if I make the statement that white supremacy is at the core of American history and will likely be a problem with us until the end of our days, if I tell a group of historians that that's water is wet. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a remarkable statement. And yet out mm -hmm. here, for some reason, it's like, you know, stunning to say that. Jay, this is Perry from Green County. I'm out here on the uh, borderline of uh, coal country, and uh, I'm fighting a daily ideological battle uh, against poisoning our children and grandchildren with mercury, lead, and uh, a dozen other poisons. When we burn coal, it goes up in the air, comes down, and uh, can really hurt the fetal and uh, brain development of our children. I just wanted to pass along some of the, uh, really, the issue that we can't get past on the ground is uh, they, they don't think that we can't get past coal as a baseline. And uh, I've listened to uh, a lot of different podcasts, and the, the solution is the co-generation of solar and wind where uh, it's thermal solar, not necessarily photovoltaic. And what you do is you spit with uh, thermal energy, molten salt. I heard a, uh, a Nobel laureate uh, physics guy talk about it you know, months ago. And uh, they solved the storage problem. It's just a matter of the big money standing in the way. we got to get the word out. And uh, I just let you know that's uh, what I'm dealing with down here on the... Uh, level and uh, if you can pass that along to anyone else working um, at the grassroots level they've solved the storage problem that's no longer a valid argument all right thank you sir have a good day hi Jay this is Tim aka black atheist pilot from Oklahoma and I wanted to weigh in on the discussion about queer identity this is an interesting topic to me because we've talked a lot about the concept of self-identification and having cis straight white men identifying as queer is definitely pushing our limits on what it means to self-identify. Central to this discussion seems to be, what does it actually mean to be queer? I don't know much about queer theory, so I can't speak to that, but I think many of us lay people have been operating under the assumption, which could be wrong, that queer is an overarching term for all those who are in the LGBT community. That has always been my understanding as a black cis gay man, but maybe that view needs to change. So I do take pause when cis straight white men identify as queer, and I think that has a lot to do with a healthy skepticism to keep a clear line between self-identification and cultural appropriation by those who hold the highest level of privilege in our society. Now the last caller in a previous episode who identified as queer had me on his side until he made a statement about being a lesbian because he was raised by lesbian parents and a gay man gave him that label, and my anti-appropriation heckles flared up. Maybe an episode covering self-identification and queerness may help shed some light on the various sides of this discussion 
And a related clip you might be able to use is a, is a discussion I heard on TWIB in the morning a couple of months back when Imani Gandhi, one of the hosts of TWIB, self-identified as culturally biracial despite being of African descent, and she received some pushback from one of the other hosts. Anyways, awesome discussion. I will keep an open mind, and I have no problem with changing my opinion, as your show has pushed me to do so many times over the years. Keep up the good work. This is Robert from Los Angeles. I have a friend who wrote an interesting question, uh, and I wonder, I, I just, I feel like I can't argue with it as effectively as, as you could, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could give me a, uh, a response. Basically, he says, if an individual is permitted to dress as he or she wants, have sex with either or both men or women, and model their life after either of society's traditional gender roles, regardless of their actual biological gender, then by pro prohibiting cosmetic genital surgery, what, if any, liberties are denied to the individual in question? Furthermore, does biological gender necessarily restrict an individual's rights or liberties in any way? If a six foot four African-American male with an unattractive face saw his own identity as that of a five foot two white male with an attractive face, does society have an obligation to A, treat him as though he appears to be a five foot two white male with an attractive face, and to provide him with the cosmetic medical resources to help him appear as he wishes to? Furthermore, does he have a right to, be, to the fulfillment of his desire to have his aesthetic appearance match his self-image? It is my opinion that there is no such thing as a man trapped in a woman's body, nor a woman trapped in a man's body. The same way there is no such thing as a supermodel trapped in an ugly person's body or a Chinese person trapped in a Norwegian's body. If a woman wants to do something, there are virtually no natural limits on her potential that are not similarly, similarly encountered by men of equivalent health and intellect. Conversely, if a man wants to have a baby, he cannot. No amount of cosmetic surgery, vocal surgery, hormone therapy, haircuts, or wardrobes can change that. It is a biological fact. Now, sure, a Norwegian man who loves Chinese culture, lives in China, and feels genuinely Chinese may become frustrated, even depressed, over the fact that strangers see and treat him like a European. But it's a matter of appearance, not biology. He doesn't hate the condition of his physical body, which all people view naturally absent external influence. He hates the way he is seen. If he is desperate to alter his physical aesthetic to appear Chinese, he has the right to do so. But it will not change what he could not choose, the condition of his birth. I'm so afraid of offending people or seeming intolerant, but I'm more afraid that this issue will confuse the nature of rights and liberties more than we can now foresee. The condition of one's birth is something no one can change, and it is therein that we derive rights. One is born with their race, their economic circumstances, their abilities, their disabilities, their gender, their sexual orientation, and yes, their appearance, predetermined. It is on this basis that we derive rights. It is on this basis that we have argued uh, that we cannot discriminate against people because of those predetermined conditions of birth. We cannot mandate you be straight because you can't choose to be. We cannot give whites more rights than blacks because the only distinction between the two is a difference in color. The des desire to be seen a certain way is a symptom of this fact being violated. People discriminate based on gender. They laugh at men in dresses, they deride women in suits. But the desperation of those victimized people to change something they cannot change is not a solution. It's merely cosmetics and aesthetics. It's wearing a mask to avoid being bullied. Nobody should be limited or promoted based on their gender, because no one can choose their gender. Basically, my understanding of his point is that gender as a concept uh, doesn't exist outside of societal uh, norms and cultures. And so why... Do uh, transgender people feel the need to um, subscribe to one or the other and uh, willing to go to uh, desperate lengths to, to make those things happen? Um, yeah, so I just wonder if uh, you could respond to that and, and uh, give me an idea of what I could say to, to my friend. 
Thanks so much, Jay. Love the show. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So as we just heard, Robert from Los Angeles has a friend. This friend is making arguments about his perspective on transgender issues, and so let's help Robert respond to this friend. Now, as we just heard, you know, he, he said lots of things. He made a bunch of arguments and comparisons. He expressed his opinions. He sounded very sure of himself. And you start to think like, oh, he said lots of things. He sounded very sure of himself. It, maybe he has a point. It's, it's almost hard to know where to start if I was going to respond. But I think that I can actually sort of narrow this down and, and simplify it quite a bit. Because I think this is a, a pretty decent example of a good way to make a really bad argument. So... The way you start out with a bad argument is with a bad premise. So in that whole pile of things that he said, what is the core of his premise? It is my opinion that there is no such thing as a man trapped in a woman's body, nor a woman trapped in a man's body. A quick side note here is that that particular phrasing, the trapped in the wrong body phrasing, is, you know, I've only learned in the past few months, not really something that's widely accepted in the trans community. So for the sake of argument, let's pretend he said it in a way that is widely accepted and just move past that for now. So this is where he's coming from. He, he makes it clear that he is stating his opinion. He's not trying to say that you know he's arguing for a fact he heard about. He's just expressing an opinion. And the key to making any bad argument well is to state the premise and move on as quickly as possible so people forget that you haven't substantiated the premise. It is my opinion that there is no such thing as a man trapped in a woman's body, nor a woman trapped in a man's body. The same way there is no such thing as a supermodel trapped in an ugly person's body or a Chinese person trapped in a Norwegian's body. If you imagine building an argument the way you'd build a building, he's started with his premise on the ground floor and started building up, but he's done nothing to build down to create a foundation for his argument. So we could theoretically stop right here and say, you've done nothing to substantiate your opinion. You're not creating a foundation for your argument, so this isn't a conversation worth having because you have nothing to stand on. But just for fun, we'll keep going. So he started with his premise that gender dysphoria is basically a thing that just doesn't exist, in his opinion, and then he immediately makes a comparison between gender and race, in his mind now establishing a firm connection between the two and stating basically his fact that they are the same. Now that he believes he has established this firm connection between gender and race, he can go on to step two, which is to make an absurd comparison. If a six foot four African American male with an unattractive face saw his own identity as that of a five foot two white male with an attractive face, does society have an obligation to A, treat him as though he appears to be a five foot two white male with an attractive face, and to provide him with the cosmetic medical resources to help him appear as he wishes to? Furthermore, does he have a right to be to the fulfillment of his desire to have his aesthetic appearance match his self-image? Now, to be very clear, I didn't say that that was an absurd comparison simply to be dismissive of it. I said that it was an absurd comparison because the person making the argument clearly intended for it to be an absurd comparison in order to make their point. So the basic argument could go like this. If there is such a thing as gender dysphoria, then there must also be such a thing as racial dysphoria, or height dysphoria, or attractiveness dysphoria, and so on. However, it's obvious that racial, height, and attractiveness dysphoria aren't real, therefore gender dysphoria must also not be real. So you see, it's a beautiful piece of circular reasoning nonsense based on the assertion that race and gender can be equated in this discussion without any evidence to back up that claim. 
So he goes on from there and makes lots of other statements that could be addressed one by one, but they all have the same fundamental problem that lies at the heart, which is that they're all built on the same baseless assertion that gender is just like race and is basically just cosmetics and aesthetics that we only put value in because of cultural and societal pressures and influences. But the problem is that the vast majority of trans people and experts who study the issue aren't going to agree with you on that opinion, so it's not good enough to just make the assertion without backing it up with something more substantial than intentionally absurd comparisons to try to prove your point. You need a foundation for your building, and what you have is a game of Jenga. So if you want to tag team in on this conversation, please feel free to call in 202-999-3991, and I have uh, something exciting today because this call and discussion uh, inspired me to decide, okay, so the next episode is going to be about trans issues, which means I have homework for you. And I'm not even kidding, but it, uh, the good news is it doesn't have a due date. It just is you have to listen to something before you listen to the next episode. So, you know, it doesn't matter when you do it. You could do it years from when I'm recording this. But what I want you to do is listen to the most perfect episode of Radio Lab that will be this perfect bridge between this episode and the next because it talks all about the power of words. Today we learned about uh, the power of words in the context of uh, you know, dog whistle racism and in the last discussion on trans issues we had was all about you know the, the power of words and how we discuss that issue. So this episode of Radio Lab is is really going to help illuminate that discussion. I think. So the name of the episode is just words. It's from season eight, episode two, all the way back from August 9th, two thousand ten. So it's easy to remember the date eight nine ten. So trust me, you'll want to hear the whole thing. I, I you know I can't excerpt the whole thing and put it in the show. I'll, I'll probably take a bit of it. But, uh, but go find Radiolab episode titled Words from August 9th, 2010, and it's free. It's, it's in their podcast feed. Whatever, however you're listening to this show, you can probably go and just go into the deep archives of uh, the Radiolab podcast feed, and you'll find it, you'll download it, you'll listen to it, and you'll thank me later. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing Stories and forget who it is before.